0: Today's guest is the brilliant Dr. Donald Hoffman. Donald is a full professor of cognitive science at the University of California, the author of The Case Against Reality and Visual Intelligence, and the co-author of Observer Mechanics. Within his body of work, Donald studies how our visual perception and perception in general Generates every aspect of our so called reality. Through his research, he has discovered important clues pointing to the subjective nature of what we believe is the reality of the world around us. Reality, in his view, is best understood as a set of phenomena that our brain constructs to guide our behaviors. In other words, We actively create everything that we see. Donald has received the Distinguished Scientific Award of the American Psychological Association for his early career research into visual perception, the Rustum Roy Award of the Chopra Foundation, and the Trolland Research Award of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. Although, of course, if you ask him, I guess he would say that none of this is actually reality. Join us as we try to discover what is actually real and what is created by evolution, by our brains, and by our limited perception of the world around us. Your breakthrough, eye-opening book that you started the conversation with was the idea of the case against reality. That's a case that most people would lose. How did you even tell yourself to go down that path?
1: Well, I didn't start there for sure. Like everybody else, I thought that I see reality as it is. We both look up and say there's a moon, and I assumed that that was because there really is a moon, and that's why we agree. But I started studying visual perception as an undergraduate at UCLA and found some papers by a guy named David Marr, who was a professor at MIT, and he was combining artificial intelligence and visual neuroscience together. And his work sounded really interesting. So I, I applied and was very lucky and got in and got to be a graduate student there and got to work with him. He died after I was only there for 14 months or so. And I had a wonderful advisor at Whitman Richards who took me through the rest of the program. But Mar's work and the whole group that he put together really made me understand in more mathematical detail from a sort of an artificial intelligence perspective, because I was in the artificial intelligence lab there at MIT and and so was Marr. but also from a neuroscience perspective, I was also in what's now called the brain and cognitive science department. And so I got to bring both perspectives to bear on understanding how perception works. And it was highly mathematical and computational and therefore quite rigorous. And when you start to look at perception with mathematical precision, you begin to get insights into it. And and one insight I began to get was, it was like a constructive process. We're not just taking a picture, we're we're constructing. And that was sort of what was the view that Marr and the whole AI lab that was working on vision had. We had to write programs that would construct what we see. Very interesting. And this is no surprise for someone who's actually building video systems for autonomous vehicles, for example, you get video coming into the computer through some video interface and all you got are pixels. You don't have any objects. You don't have depth. You don't have shapes. You just have numbers for the brightnesses or colors at different points. So if you're going to see a person riding a bicycle in front of you and hit the brakes in time automatically, you have to construct the bicycle. You have to construct the whole 3d scene that you're seeing. Otherwise you'll just have pixels and not the world. And so, So that was the first hint that it was construction. But then most of my colleagues in this field assume, yeah, it is construction, but it's not just construction. We're reconstructing the truth. And so what we're using is mathematical models like Bayesian estimation to estimate the true shapes, the true colors, the true velocities, and so forth of the objects around us. So again, in the case of vision systems for autonomous vehicles, the idea was that, yeah, you're constructing what you see, but you're really, the construction process is a, a reconstruction of the truth. You're estimating the true parameters of the world around you, the true shapes and colors and objects. And so I bought that. That you know, it seemed pretty, pretty reasonable. But at some point, I, I began to realize that when I was trying to develop a general theory of perception based on this Bayesian kind of idea, that really what I was seeing was only a construction. And one day it just occurred to me that that construction might be untethered to reality. And when I, <laughs> when I realized that, I, m- I remember the day it hit me, I was like 1986 or something like that, that I was like, I just had to sit down because that possibility was such a stunning possibility. And I didn't see anything in the math that forced me to reject that possibility. So I began to thinking in that idea. And I published a book called Visual Intelligence, How We Create What We See, back in 1998. And in that book, I go through the standard computational ideas that, that the field has. So it was, I was sort of just showing the state of the play in the field at the time, with neuroscience and AI kind of ideas about how we construct what we see. But in that book, I was already talking about, well, but it may not be a reconstruction. It may be that we're just creating our realities, period, not just recreating the truth. But I didn't have any real argument for it. I didn't have a strong mathematical argument. And I realized that there was no reason for anybody to take that idea too seriously unless I could give some deeper argument. And I realized that it might be worth looking at evolution by natural selection. And my intuition was that it might just be too costly in time and energy to see the truth. You know, natural selection (laughs) tries to do things on the cheap, right? Yeah. Right, and that was sort of the intuition. It's not a very deep intuition, but you know, it's not wrong, but it's not deep. So I thought maybe because it's too costly in time and energy to see the truth. That we'll use heuristics and shortcuts, and so I, I got a couple of graduate students around 2010, a little bit before 2010, interested in this. Uh, Justin, Mark, and Brian, Marion, and, and we just did some simulations. I mean, they wrote the simulations. I we learned some evolutionary game theory because evolution by natural selection is a mathematically precise theory now. So I knew that there was beef, you know, mathematical beef that we could follow and see where it led. And the simulation showed that, yes, uh, creatures in our simulations that we allowed to see reality in its completeness never outcompeted creatures that we didn't let see any of the objective reality and we just let them be tuned to the fitness payoffs. What does that mean? What is fitness payoff? So evolution is you can think of it like a video game. Oh, yeah, I do that all the time. <laughs> and, and in a video game, right, there is a distinction between the reality that you're interacting with, which would be like the, you know, in that metaphor, it would be the circuits and software of the computer, the voltages and magnetic fields in the computer, versus the virtual reality that you're experiencing. So if you, Absolutely. for example, have a, a VR headset on and you're playing a virtual souped-up game of uh, Grand Theft Auto, maybe multiplayer game of it, you'll see things like, you know, a red Ferrari and a a green Mustang or something like that. And you see the steering wheel and the dashboard of your car. And of course, that virtual reality is utterly unlike the real reality in this metaphor, the, the circuits and software and the rules of the game. This is where the fitness payoffs come in. I mean, what you have to do to win the game is like the fitness payoffs for the game. Right, So turn the steering wheel to the left if you want to go left and hit the gas just the right way to pass a car and so forth. These are sort of the rules of the road for getting the fitness payoffs of the game, winning points in the game. And that's utterly unrelated to the structure of the supercomputer that's that's driving the software. So there's no way that you could infer from the what you need to do in the game to get points to what's going on inside the computer. Learning about turning a steering wheel not only
0: that i think those three metaphors are very real for me because not only that you only render a very small part of the game if you want to win so the truth is you know i'm a very serious gamer i don't hide that yeah so so the truth is as a matter of fact one of the of the skills of a gamer is to narrow their field of vision to the target that they're trying to look at and the idea here is i'm not trying to understand the entire game world I'm just trying to understand that one little target, and by doing that, I'm actually almost filtering out most of the
1: game world. That's exactly right. And the headset that you're wearing also filters out most of the world because as you turn your head to the right, now I see the red Ferrari, but I can't see the green Mustang because there's no pixels being sprayed to my eyes for the green Mustang. Now I go over, turn my head that way. Now there's no red Ferrari because there's no pixels and I can't create a red Ferrari, and now I'm creating a green Mustang. Now I'm creating my steering wheel. Now I'm creating the dashboard. So you're right. As you turn your headset around, you're effectively creating the objects that you see on the fly, and you're deleting the objects that you see on the fly. And I actually think that's what's going on.
0: Yeah, but your explanation goes another layer deeper, which is even more awe-inspiring, if you want, because. What you're saying is, and by the way, none of those even exist at all. There is no red Ferrari, no, there is no green Mustang. As a matter of fact, there is a QLED display that is made of a sheet of glass and you know uh, some LEDs behind it. And these are creating all of that illusion, if you want, of being
1: in a race. And is that what life is about? That's the idea that I want to propose here, is that we've assumed that when we look around and we see space and time and Objects in space and time, trees and cars and animals and the moon, that we're seeing reality. And I'm saying, no, you're seeing what you're rendering in your headset. Evolution has given us a headset. Wow. Not a mirror or or a window. Sorry, not a window on reality. It's a virtual reality headset. And the point of the headset from an evolutionary point of view is simply to help you win the game of life, which is to survive long enough to reproduce, right? That's from an evolutionary point of view what it's about. But winning the game and seeing the truth are two very, very different things. And and in the gaming metaphor, you could imagine someone who, for example, tries to win the game, say, again, the Grand Theft Auto game, you give them some tools to actually toggle voltages in the supercomputer and say, okay, toggle voltages as fast as you can and try to win the game that way. Now you're dealing with the truth, right? You're actually seeing the... (laughs) It's not very entertaining. (laughs) It's not very entertaining and good luck because someone who just turns the steering wheel and presses on the gas is going to be toggling tons of voltages much faster than you could possibly toggle them. And so that's the point. If you try to control reality directly, you're going to be very, very inefficient. You're going to lose the game. And so evolution from this point of view... And by the way, I should just say, as a scientist, I have great respect for our scientific theories, evolution by natural selection, physical theories, quantum field theory, Einstein's theories of space-time. Great respect and as a scientist I study them because they're the best ideas that we have so far. But I don't think they're the final word and I don't think they're necessarily true. I think that we should assume that we have to study them and then we try to deconstruct them, try to find a deeper scientific theory that's even better that will keep our current theories as a special case. So when I'm talking about evolution by natural selection, I'm not being doctrinaire and saying this is the final word. I'm just saying we don't have a better theory right now, so I would be irresponsible to use any less than our best theories, which is very different than being doctrinaire and saying you got to believe evolutionary theory. No, you don't have to believe anything, but you don't want to use less than the best tools that we have so far. Very, 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 very interesting. So that's actually exactly what I
0: wrote in the chapter of the illusion of knowledge, that one of the characters of of science is that a person with a true passion for science acknowledges that every now and then science itself discovers that what was before is not science, that you had a good approximation of reality as per the perception of what you had. And then eventually you said, but that's actually doesn't turn out to be true because your perception was widened and you actually could
1: understand more. That's right. And what we tend to find in science is that as we make the next step, we don't throw away what we'd learned before. We see it in a deeper context, and it makes sense in a deeper context. So like in physics, going from Newton to Einstein, we didn't throw away the notion of space and time, but we we united space and time to a single object, space-time, And it took on a different character than Newton. The notion of simultaneity disappeared. The notion of simultaneous events, we had to let go of that. There were certain things that we thought we could talk about in Newton that we we can't. And now, the next step, I think, in physics, physicists are saying space-time itself is doomed. Tell me more. What do you mean by that? I'm a huge fan of space-time. Yes, we're all sort of addicted to space time, I and mean, we, we've assumed that it's the final reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's doomed. No, <laughs> it's doomed. And by the way, evolution agrees that what we've just been saying is just a headset. Space time is just the format of our virtual reality headset, so it's not the final reality. Ah, it's the game world. It's not the. It's you know. It's the game world. Exactly right. It's not
0: the bits and bytes. It's not the hardware. It's not the glass and the QLEDs. Right.
1: That's right. We've assumed that it's the final reality. It's just the headset. So the work that I've been doing on evolution makes that very, very clear, that evolution by natural selection wouldn't give us a window on the truth. It would give us a headset to hide the truth that just lets us play the game of life because seeing the truth would make you go extinct. So you have to have a headset. So I love your analogy. So in my, in my years
0: at Google X, I think I could see that very clearly because I worked a lot on AI. I worked actively on self-driving cars, and you can suddenly realize hold on, those beings are able to recognize, construct a reality through, you know, in neural networks, for example, what the machine actually sees in deep learning is very different than what we see, but it can still recognize it as a cat. As you rightly said, a self-driving car is, is obviously seeing things we don't see at all in wireframes that are very different, in ways that that look very different. And at the same time, they're able to avoid hitting a pedestrian, which basically is all the proof that you need that what we're actually seeing is not what we see because others see it differently.
1: That's exactly right. So we're each constructing our own aspects of reality that we need to win in life. And if you're playing a multiplayer game of Grand Theft Auto, for example, I could be looking at the red Ferrari and that's what I'm rendering while you're looking at the green Mustang and you're rendering something entirely different. We're playing the same game, but what we're seeing is, is entirely different. What's remarkable is that the three big pillars of modern science, Einstein's theory of gravity, quantum field theory, and evolution by natural selection are all telling us the same thing. They all agree that space-time is doomed. It's not the fundamental reality. And that is that's stunning because science and physics in particular, but science in general, has been about what happens in space and time. That's That's been exactly. what science is about, and especially yeah. physics. It's, that's sort of its definition, what happens in space and time. And so some physicists are saying, like uh, Nima Arkani-Hamed, who's at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, is saying, space-time is doomed. It's not really clear what physics is about. Physics has been about what happens in space and time. And so they're not worried about it. I mean, the young generation of physicists is quite excited because this gives them new fields to explore. What are the mathematical structures that they're going to discover behind space-time? And they are discovering new structures that that are far deeper than space-time, something called the amplituhedron, sociahedron, cosmological polytopes. These are really beautiful mathematical structures that can show how space-time arises, but they themselves are beyond space-time, and they have symmetries that you can't see in space-time.
0: I love this view, but I have to say it's a very threatening view to our way of life because what you're practically saying is that nothing really exists as we think it exists and that the entire physics of our world, the entire sense of anything that you can get in your physical form might actually not be true at all. That We might be on the other side of the TV watching this entire game called life through a VR headset,
1: basically. That's right. And this is a very unsettling view. I agree with you. The first time that I took it seriously, I had to sit down because it was you know, like a, a punch to the gut, really. And it's, I think, so counterintuitive to most people and, and very, very threatening. When, when I give talks and I put out this point of view, at first people are sure they've misunderstood me. And when they realize that I'm really crazy enough to be saying what I'm saying, that we don't see reality as it is, Then they think that there are some just obvious rejoinders that will shoot the whole thing down. And when I answer two or three of those rejoinders, then in some cases I see terror because when they realize that they can't just sort of dismiss this idea out of hand and they, for the first time, take seriously the possibility that we've never seen reality as it is, it's truly stunning because it's such a deep assumption. How deep? It seems to be programmed into us, according to child psychologists beginning with Piaget and others. Around four months of age, we get what they call object permanence. We're programmed to believe the headset. We're programmed to believe that the objects that we see really are the reality that would exist even if no one looked. We're just programmed to believe that. So at four months of age, we're not old enough to have any rational discussion of the idea. We just believe it. And so when we come to adulthood, that's the water we've swimmed in all of our life. We believe in objects not because we've had some kind of rational conclusion to that effect, we believe it because we believed it before we could even be rational. So it's really hard for us to question something that's been so fundamental to our whole conception of reality since infancy. So what we're dealing with is something that hits you in the gut, because if I've been wrong all of my life about something so fundamental in my beliefs, what else could I be wrong about? There's this this sense of certainty that disappears, there's a loss of certainty. But I think it's a very healthy loss, by the way. I think that's the the first step in some sense growing up. I totally agree. I think
0: that the most fundamental moments in anyone's lives is when they revisit a belief and they go like, oops, that turned out to be wrong. What am I going to reconstruct now that was based on that belief? And, you know, it doesn't have to be something as fundamental or deep as our perception of reality, but I'll be very open. Most ideologies, for example, are certain perceptions programmed in us. And sometimes when you're really honest with yourself, you sit back and you go like, whoops, that wasn't exactly right. And I've built my entire life around that ideology. Sometimes be it religion, be it a perception of the feminine and the masculine. And when you revisit all of those, suddenly you go like, whoa, Like, what else did I build on top of that that might also be untrue?
1: Absolutely. So being dogmatic is always going to be self-destructive because you can't learn. So this is true in everyday life, in religion, but also in science. Individual scientists can be as dogmatic as anybody else, but science as a social institution is designed to counter dogmatism. What we do in science is to pit scientists against each other i may have a theory that i i really like and i'm dogmatic about but the other scientists are going to spend their energies trying to take it down and so as a social institution science is not dogmatic and that's why even though physics has been about what happens in space-time for centuries the -the state-of-the-art physicists are now saying space-time is doomed in other words science itself is not dogmatic even though space-time has been such a great framework for centuries As soon as scientists really understand that it's over, it's over. And they're moving on to the next thing. They're looking for something beyond space-time. So I think in our personal lives, as well as in in science and in religion, it's a humility is really critical. That's how we learn. It's to, of course, study, understand in religion or science, to study, to understand the best ideas that are out there, So we have to be humble to study and understand what is being said, and then humble enough to say that um, as neat as it might look, as powerful as it might be, it might be wrong in certain respects. It might be deeply wrong. And the only way to really be open to learning and growing spiritually or scientifically is to be willing to see where you've been wrong, maybe deeply wrong. That's how we learn. And that may be more than just a side issue work I'm doing on consciousness right now is quite possible that that's what consciousness is fundamentally about, is an endless process of growing and learning because there is no end to that process. Let's
0: dive deep into this. So everything we see in our reality is subject to that materialism of science. It's like everything is within space-time, everything is something we can touch or feel or sense or measure or whatever that is. And now we're saying, no, hold on, Consciousness is above, outside all of that. As a matter of fact, I may, correct me if I'm wrong, but I may have heard you say consciousness constructs all of that. It, is, it sees parts of signals around it or observes signals around it, or does it actually create those realities?
1: Yes, that's what I am proposing. And again, I'm proposing it in the spirit of, of course I could be wrong, but let's explore this idea it's a counterintuitive idea. Instead of saying that space-time is fundamental and that physical objects like our brains are constructing our perceptions and our conscious experiences. So we start with a brain and we get conscious experiences coming out of the brain. I'm saying, no, the brain is just an icon in your headset. It doesn't have any exactly. causal powers. Yeah. The steering wheel in my Grand Theft Auto game That I'm seeing is just a virtual reality, and it seems like the steering wheel has causal powers. It seems like it causes the car to go left and right, but that's just an illusion, a useful illusion, but it's an illusion. And similarly, it's an illusion, a useful one, that brain activity causes conscious experiences. So I'm proposing to turn that around, partly because I don't have any better ideas. It's poverty of my imagination. If I don't start with physics and boot up consciousness, well, sort of like, what's the other alternative? Start with consciousness and try to boot up physics, right? So Maybe, you know, thinking deeper, I'll find some other third path that's really interesting. But this is what I'm looking at right now is let's get a mathematical model of consciousness and, and start with a hypothesis, a fallible hypothesis, but an interesting hypothesis that consciousness is fundamental and that space and time is merely a headset that certain kinds of consciousness use to interact with other consciousnesses. So I call this theory theory of conscious agents. So the idea is there's a bunch of conscious agents, an indefinite number. So reality is like a vast social network, like the Twitterverse. And in the Twitterverse, for example, there are tens of millions of users. It's really complicated. Billions of tweets. It's impossible for any Twitter user to completely grasp or come to grips with that complicated reality. So if we really wanted to see and understand what's happening in the Twitterverse we need a visualization tool. Ideally it would be a VR headset that lets us simplify the long-term trends, for example, of what's going on in Twitter. The long-term behavior what we call the asymptotic behavior. So we'd need a tool that lets us, for example, see what's trending in all of the United States versus we go over and see what's trending in China. Then we could zoom in what's happening in Dubai, zoom back out, zoom what's happening in Irvine. So we want a tool that lets us Zoom in and zoom out on the social network to see what's going on. And in particular cases, maybe I need to zoom in to a particular person in Dubai and see what they're doing on their Twitter feed. But then I zoom back out because I can't do that with all 10 million users. (laughs) It would be overwhelming. So that's the idea then that what we have when we see objects in space and time is that we're a set of conscious agents that are using a particular visualization tool to interact with this vast network of conscious agents. And a visualization tool is necessarily going to eliminate most of the reality. It's going to just hide it, right? That's why you have the tool. If you had to see all the 10 million Twitter users and the billion of tweets, you'd be overwhelmed. Well, the purpose of the the visualization tool is to not show you that complexity, but to show you a distillation, a compression of that into some useful compression that, that you can understand and interact with. And so... To be very concrete, when I interact with you, my headset is just giving me a body. I'm seeing skin, hair, and eyes. And when you see me, you just see skin, hair, and eyes. But you know firsthand when you look at yourself in the mirror that behind the skin, hair, and eyes that you see in the mirror, this much richer world of your conscious experiences, your hopes, your dreams, your love of music, your aspirations, the rich world of everything that you're experiencing, the emotions that you have, it's hidden behind what's relatively a trivial icon on your interface, what we call the face or the body. So when I look at my cat, I have an icon, which is giving me less insight into the consciousnesses that I'm interacting with. When I look at a mouse, my headset is giving me even less insight. When I look at an ant, even less. When I see, you know, through a microscope, I see an amoeba, Far, far less. And by the time we get down to things that we call like atoms or or rocks, we see no evidence of consciousness or even life. But what I'm saying is what we have assumed is a principal distinction between living and non-living, conscious and unconscious, is not a principle distinction. It's a necessary artifact of a visualization tool that has to give up. It has to simplify, simplify, simplify until at some point you have no evidence of consciousness or life. So there's no principal distinction between living and non-living. That's just an artifact of the format of our headset. What's really going on is we're always interacting with consciousness and we're getting more or less insight into what we're interacting with. So I'm not saying, for example, that rocks are conscious. I'm also not saying that your body is conscious. Your body is just an icon. A rock is just an icon. The body that you see when you see me is just your icon That body is not conscious, but it's giving you a visualization tool in your headset that gives you access, fallible, but real, to my consciousness. And my consciousness is interacting with your consciousness. It's affecting your consciousness and vice versa. And we're using this headset with icons that we call bodies as portals between our consciousnesses. In the case of a rock, the portal is so bad that I have no idea what I'm interacting with in terms of consciousnesses. And that's a necessary feature of a visualization tool. You have to dumb things down. I have so many things to talk to you about here. <laughs> so
0: one of them is actually just to maybe indulge in that thinking for a while, because I definitely gave that a lot of thought. The idea of, is a planet or a rock conscious? And I attempted to define what is conscious. I think consciousness is an awareness of its environment, an awareness of its surrounding, if you want. And using the same analogy of a self-driving car is aware of its surrounding very differently than we are, a pebble is aware of its surrounding because if it hits the ground, it no longer follows gravity, it stops, right? So it maybe is not an intelligent form of consciousness because it doesn't maybe make decisions or take actions based on it, but it is, and a tree, for example, is aware of the seasons. A tree would shed its leaves at a certain time, maybe push its roots further down to find water. And so these are all forms of awareness of the environment around you. They're very different than human awareness, but so is a self driving car's awareness, right? And so, would that qualify them as conscious or not? I believe there is some
1: form of. Consciousness in everything, really. So this is a really important point. If we think about everything that we perceive as just our VR headset, and all the objects that we see are merely icons in our VR headset, then those icons, none of those icons are themselves conscious. The icons are just icons. So I, as a conscious agent, am using these icons as go-betweens between me and other conscious agents. So the icons are really forms of my experience. They're not separate experiencers themselves. That's amazing. But the interesting thing about these icons in my headset is that somehow they're allowing communication between my consciousness and other consciousnesses. So this is a a layer of sophistication that's non-trivial. So we're so used to taking our icons seriously and literally that we want to put the consciousness in the icon. But the icons literally are things that you and I create on the fly. I look over there and I create my cat icon. I look away and I garbage collect it. I throw it away. There is a consciousness (laughs) that's undisturbed. Every time I interact with that consciousness, I create a cat icon. But the cat icon itself is just my icon. It's not conscious. So right now, when I interact with you, I'm creating my Mo icon. The Mo icon I create, I just garbage collected because I looked away. But Mo's consciousness is not affected by me garbage collecting my Mo icon because the Mo icon is not Mo and it's not his consciousness. It's just my icon. So that's the sense in which I say rocks aren't conscious, pebbles aren't conscious, human bodies aren't conscious because a human body is just... The human body that I see when I look at you is different than the human body that another friend of yours might see when they look at you they have their own icon they're numerically distinct icons so you're not your consciousness is not identified with any one of those icons your consciousness is your consciousness when I say that of course there's a deeper sense in which I agree with you there's the Gaia hypothesis right about earth in some sense having its own consciousness its own sense there's something Very important about that. So there is a deep idea there that I think is right, but literally speaking, the Earth is just an icon. But that metaphor of Gaia, I think there's a deeper way of interpreting it, which is to say there are consciousnesses at a much higher level than we might have imagined, far more coordinated than we might have imagined, that the best icon that we can come up with that sort of points to them is something we call the planet Earth. But then I make the distinction that the planet Earth is just an icon that I make up. It's part of my symbol system. I don't want to conflate that with this deeper, higher-level coordination of consciousnesses. So this is a subtle point, but the reason I'm going into it is it's conceptually a game-changer. This is a conceptual game-changer.
0: I have to agree. I think the concept that everything you can interact with in the physical world we are in is actually not the consciousness that you're dealing with. it's a representation of that consciousness, and it's actually not a representation that's created by that consciousness. it's a representation that's created by your consciousness. So your perception of me is not created by me, it's created by you, by your observation, by your awareness. So I guess this conversation will take us a little longer, so don't touch that dial. We'll split this into two parts and. Yeah, join us on the next part of the conversation where we go even deeper into understanding reality, its relationship with quantum physics and its relationship with spirituality. I'll see you now in part two. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for Mo Gaudet, Slow Mo, for Happy or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.